I've seen men spend their lifetime making money, and I know some of the richest men in America, and I know how miserable some of them are. I've seen men strive all their lives to attain political power, and they get political power, they get the office they were seeking, but it doesn't bring the peace and the joy and the happiness and the fulfillment they thought it would. But here's an interesting thing. I've never seen a person give their lives to Jesus Christ sincerely, but what they didn't find, what they were looking for. He's satisfied. The deepest longings of our hearts and our lives. I wonder how many more sermons it would take to win you to Christ. This is Our American Stories, and for the hour, the life of Billy Graham, born in 1918 on a small North Carolina dairy farm. He would go on to be one of the most important men of faith, if not the most important man of faith, in the 20th century. He preached to over 215 million people in person. 185 countries is the number he visited. And he impacted just about everyone. John Paul II talked about how Graham impacted his ministry, a Protestant impacting the leader of the Catholic Church. He was an advisor to all presidents, published books. His TV ministry reached 2.2 billion people. But to truly understand this man's life is to hear his sermons, or to hear at least a sermon in honor of Billy Graham, because that was his great talent, communicating the Word of God through sermons to mass numbers of people. At places like Dodger Stadium and Madison Square Garden and Yankee Stadium, this guy did not mess around. And at a time when everybody would have said, you're going to fill Yankee Stadium in the 1950s? You're crazy. Started his first sort of tent parade in 1949. By the way, in Los Angeles, at the very first series of revivals that he ever conducted, a man named Louis Zamperini walked in. We're going to get to that later because Louis Zamperini was saved there, and thus we have the book Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. And without Billy Graham, the book would have been called Broken, and it wouldn't have been interesting. What unbroke Louis Zamperini was that Billy Graham crusade, and it had unbroken his wife just a few days before. And that's the only reason she didn't divorce him. She said, I have got to forgive you. I'm sticking with you. But I need something from you. Louis, I need you to go and see Billy Graham too. Again, we're going to get to that story in a bit. But as I promised you, a Billy Graham sermon. And after quoting some scripture in this classic, this classic sermon, The Value of a Soul, he read this scripture, and it's from Mark. And it's Mark 35 through 38. For whosoever will save his life, shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? And from there, Graham describes the soul that lives in your body. Now, the Bible teaches that you have a body. But living down inside of your body is your soul or your spirit. I'm not going to try to distinguish tonight because that's a technical theological discussion between soul and spirit. I'm going to use them interchangeably. Your soul is that part of you 
made in the image of God that lives inside of you and that's the eternal part of you. That's the important part of you. That's the real you. That's the part of you that will be living a thousand years from now, either in heaven or hell. The real you, your body will be in the grave until the resurrection. Jesus said, one soul is worth the whole world. You may gain the whole world and awaken one morning to find that you've missed the most important thing in all of life. Why is it so valuable? Why is your soul so valuable? First, it's valuable because it is eternal. The body is a beautiful structure, but it is matter. No matter how strong, it will die. It's appointed unto man once to die. You're going to die. Your body is going to go to the grave unless you're alive when Christ comes back. Death is man's greatest impersonal enemy, according to 1 Corinthians 15. So many of the great actors and actresses we've seen on television are already dead. I think of Donna Reed. My wife and I were friends of Donna Reed. Starring last year in Dallas. Now she's dead. Or Rock Hudson. Acting on the screen. So handsome. Dead. And you could name one after another. Dead. Fame, fortune, cannot keep away death. Howard Hughes was the richest man possibly in the United States when he died. But he died. A horrible death, miserable life toward the end of his life. So many people like that. And somehow they think they're going to live forever. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from this value of the soul sermon. And it's so plain. It's so direct. You're hearing exactly why this man influenced the people he did and the numbers, the sheer numbers. And again, this... This sermon was at the Washington Convention Center, and he's talking to the masses always, straight to the heart, and about the big questions, folks, the eternal questions. What are we? Who are we? What happens when we die? Is there a God, and is he a good God? My goodness. When we come back, more on the life of Billy Graham. The thief on the cross took that one moment and said, Lord, remember me. And in that moment, Jesus said, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. That quick, you can make your decision and commit. And remember, God loves you. He has a plan for your life. You're sinful. You're separated from God by sin. And some of the results of this sin are worry and irritability and lack of purpose in life, as well as some of the gross, immoral sins that we read about. God has provided the cross as a means for you to be forgiven of sin. You and you alone in the quiet arena of your heart will have to make that decision.
and we return to the celebration of the life of Billy Graham, who, by the way, launched the very first crusade in Los Angeles and extended it from the original three weeks to eight overflow crowds. Many of his subsequent early crusades were similarly extended, including one in London that lasted 12 weeks and a New York City crusade in Madison Square Garden in 57 that ran nightly for 16 weeks. That's just crazy. We think it's unbelievable that Billy Joel sells out the garden once a month for a few years. And again, this is 1957 when articles were running in Time magazine, Is God Dead? And by the way, the reason for that is Americans and the world had witnessed 60 million people dying in world conflagration. And a lot of people lost faith. Man's inhumanity to man never on higher display than World War II. So let's go back to that, that sermon, The Value of a Soul. Graham goes on to talk about how young people think they're immortal. You tell young people that life is short and they sort of smile and say yes, but I've got at least 30 or 40 years ahead. Let me tell you, it goes just like that. I can tell you, somebody asked me on one of my birthdays, I'm not going to tell you which one. They said, when you, get, when you were 65 way back there, what was your greatest surprise in life? I said, the brevity of life. That's the greatest surprise of my life is how brief it is. It's gone. I feel like a boy. Sometimes I feel like I'm 18. Again, I feel my real age. But it passes so fast. And then... The soul, just as this body has various members like hands and nose and ears and eyes, feet, so the soul has its various faculties and attributes. First, there's understanding, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says. Toynbee said man by his knowledge has brought himself to total annihilation. Yes, we can have knowledge, but we don't have the wisdom to control our technology. But wisdom and knowledge are a part of our soul. And judgment, which weighs and determines and makes judgments every day in our lives. Or your will, which chooses or rejects the things brought before it. Or your affections, which cause you to fear or to love. Memory which is the mental capacity for storing up our knowledge of ideas and events. Conscience, which is the monitor of the soul, judges and pronounces verdicts upon all that we do or say. All of that is a part of our soul that'll live forever. Graham then talks about how science doesn't always teach about what is good for the soul. Now, science, producing living cells, talks of protoplasm. Protoplasm by themselves cannot smile in the midst of pain. Nor can protoplasms love the unlovely, nor generate high hope in times of disaster. They cannot contemplate God. There's something beyond science, and the scientists know it. The Bible calls it soul. What is it when a person dies? The body's there. The organs are there, but something has gone out of the body. The soul, the spirit, has gone out of the body. Where has it gone? Job says, but there's a spirit in man. 
And in Ecclesiastes it says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto the God who gave it. Now which do you care for if you're a parent? A child's clothes or the child? A servant says, Here are the clothes, they're neat and clean, but the child got lost. What would you think of that? And that's what we say. We've taken care of our body, Lord. Here's my body. I didn't neglect it. I took exercises, all those exercises on TV that Jane Fonda has or somebody else has got. I did all those things. I jogged regularly. I ate the proper foods and boy did I take the vitamins and the minerals and packages of them. Whole fistfuls a day. And I went to see the doctor regular. I went to see the dentist every six months. My body's in good shape until it died. And Lord, I took care of it. But I neglected my soul. I didn't feed the soul. I didn't give any vitamins to the soul. I never read the scriptures, your word. I never spent any time talking to you and developing myself spiritually. I didn't obey you when you told me to love my neighbor. I didn't obey you when you talked about that neighbor down the street that was hungry or that neighbor that was in need of a friend that was lonely. I, I just didn't have time for things like that, but Lord, I really took care of the body. And here's how Graham closes things out. Now, what do you think the Lord is going to do? You see, the body is the house and the soul is the tenant. And it's eternal. You can't be unborn. You were born to live forever. And you cannot be unborn. You cannot stop the process. You can change the direction of your life. Jesus said there are two roads in life, a broad road and a narrow road. The broad road leads to destruction and the narrow road leads to eternal life. And you're on one or the other tonight. Every person here tonight is on one of those roads. You can change roads. But you cannot change the fact that you're a living soul and that you're going to live somewhere forever. That's a sobering thought. That is a sobering thought. And this is as relevant today as it was then, as it was in the first century. And these are eternal questions. And that's why we're celebrating the life of Billy Graham. Because nobody pondered them better and nobody took them to the culture better. What Graham was so good at doing was sitting down with the stars of the day, loving on them, sharing, showing goodwill. Here he is... On the Woody Allen show, this is before Woody Allen was to become this famous director. At the time, he had been a stand-up. His stand-up career had taken him to this sort of sit-down chat show, a little bit like the Johnny Carson show. Woody Allen once had Billy Graham on his TV show back in 69. Here's Woody's introduction. My next guest is a, um, is a very charming and uh, provocative gentleman. Um, he... Uh, whether you agree with his point of view or not on things, uh, he's always extremely interesting to, um, to talk to. I, I don't agree with him on a great many subjects. There are a few that we do agree on. Um, but uh, he certainly is the best in the world at what he does. And uh, Mr. Billy Graham, 
very nice to be with you, Woody, and I'd like to say that there's some things I don't agree with you on. <laughs> I know, but it's a question of which one of us will be converted by the time... <laughs> I, I hope I can convert you to um, agnosticism by the time the show is over. Well, I've had a lot of people try, and uh, the more they try, the firmer I get uh, in my conviction. And listen to the play. At one point, someone in the audience asks Woody a question that Billy Graham answers for him. Yeah. Woody, do you think that you could ever make a good minister? <laughs> I'd like to answer that. Sure. I think yes, definitely. You think I have the traits of a minister? I think you do, because you see, some of the greatest ministers of history have been some of the greatest sinners of history. You have this terrific mind, you have this ability to communicate, God could use you. Really? That's like getting into the army or something. <laughs> no, it'd be a great experience. Yeah, would I have to wear one of those dark coats and oh, a white no, collar? Oh, no, no, no. Like you don't like see this? mine, do you? No, you, you, no, that's right, but you dress very conservatively. Well, that was because... Uh, uh, I was on a previous show early, and this is the way I had to dress on that particular show, and I didn't have time to change before I came over here to the studio. Do you think that I... I would like to have worn a very loud coat for, to... for this occasion. Yeah, something casual and <laughs> devil may care if you'll excuse me. Well, this is rather... <laughs> this is rather... You mean something wild, like a blue coat or something like that, rather... <laughs> yes, something really crazy, like a blue coat. <laughs> And that's what made Graham Graham talk into the secular world, to non-believers, everybody he treated the same. And when we come back, more on the life of this great religious leader, Billy Graham. California has grown to such proportions that it covers many square miles between the Sierra Madre Mountains and the Pacific Ocean. In this area, four million men, women, and children live going to and fro, seeking, reaching, waiting. From Minneapolis comes the young evangelist Billy Graham and song leader Cliff Barrows, his wife Billy Barrows, and Beverly Shea, the gospel singer, to cooperate with Christ for Greater Los Angeles in a great revival campaign. This is Our American Stories, and that's some newsreel from way back when. And Billy Graham began, well, almost everything back in that year. That's when the revivals began. And that brings us to a couple of stories we're going to bring to you that the mainstream culture has not, and that is the mainstream media. And the two stories we're going to discuss here are the stories of Louis Zamperini and the story of Johnny Cash. And Zamperini was at that 1949 revival while his wife had gone first. Nine years later, 
after having given himself to Christ at that Billy Graham revival. Well, let's take a listen to Billy Graham introducing Zamperini in San Francisco in 1958 to another large crowd at Candlestick Park. Maybe many of you remember the headlines in 1936, some of you older people do, because Louis Zamberini was representing the United States in the World Olympics in Berlin. He was the great Olympic miler, and he was the man that climbed up the rice stock and pulled Hitler's flag right down from the top. And the whole world gasped, and it became an international incident. During the war, Louis Zamberini was an American war hero. He was 47 days on a life raft floating around in the Pacific. And he began to drink when he came home, and he was confused and frustrated and mixed up in his life. And he too wandered into that tent on Washington and Hill in Los Angeles and found Christ as his savior. And tonight, he is the director of the Victory Boys Camp for Juvenile Delinquents in Los Angeles giving his full life now to try to rehabilitate juvenile delinquents and lead them to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lewis, we're delighted to have you with us tonight. Thank you, Billy. It was after the war and with about $10,000 in back pay from two and a half years in prison camp and also uh, collecting my life insurance for being dead, (laughs) I became uh, extremely... Uh, selfish, cynical, and greedy until the uh, wind was finally let out of my sails. I lost everything that I possessed outside of my wife and little girl. And it was then that my wife was able to persuade me into going down to that meeting at Washington and Hill Street in Los Angeles where I heard the gospel from Billy Graham's lips. And there as I sat in the meeting, I heard... Billy Graham, when he stated that God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, could forgive me for my sins, and that if I put my trust in him, I could have eternal life. And so I went forward in that meeting, asked God to forgive me for not having kept many promises I made on the raft. I acknowledged to God that I was a sinner. I asked the Lord Jesus Christ to come into my heart and save me, And, of course, he did. Since then, I have had an unquenchable joy of working with these uh, wayward boys and uh, also preaching to them the same gospel that I heard nine years ago. Thank you very much. And many years later, uh, Zamperini was interviewed. This is after Laura Hillenbrand had written her remarkable book, actually before Angelina Jolie did her movie, which somehow left Billy Graham and Jesus Christ out of the movie. What was in that movie, though, and was in Lauren Hillenbrand's book, was the torture that Zamperini faced from a guy named The Bird. That was his nickname, The Bird. And he was brutal. He was brutal to Louis. And the beautiful part of the book is that, well, Louis Zamperini went to The Bird's house in Japan, tried to get in touch with him to forgive him. The Bird wouldn't see him. But it didn't matter. Louis still forgave him, because that's what Christians are supposed to do. Here is Louis Zamperini sharing his journey after the war and after that prison camp experience with the bird. He was back home, but all was not well. Now I got married. I have a little girl, and I'm still suffering nightmares, waking up uh, screaming, uh, strangling the, uh, the bird, 
And one night I accidentally strangled my wife in my dream and she got scared. I drank, uh, I just figured the more I drank, the, the, the better I'd sleep at night. So I was out every night drunk. My wife refused to go with me and uh, she decided on a divorce and had every right for a divorce. And then somebody had talked her into going to hear a, a new evangelist, a young evangelist called Billy Graham. I ask you tonight, are you prepared to meet God? Are you prepared to meet God the moment you die? She said, because of my conversion, Louis, I'm not going to get a divorce. Boy, I was happy. Then she and her newly found Christian friends were all over me, and I avoided them like a plague. She talks about one person only, the person of Jesus Christ, for 30 minutes. And, uh, you know, he read the scriptures, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, I knew I was a sinner, but I didn't like the idea of someone else reminding me, you know. Well, if anybody had ever asked me if I believed that Christ was the Son of God, I would have said, yes, all my life I believed it. But the heart, no. I never. I knew somehow if I believed it in my heart, my life would have been different. So I knew I didn't possess the Savior. And uh, But I still didn't want to do it. And I think the best Description of that is, the Bible says that men prefer darkness rather than light. And here I was preferring my rotten life to, to, to the light. And then I started having a flashback to the life raft and prison camp. All those thousands and thousands of prayers, God, spare my life through the war and I'll seek you and serve you. And I kept thinking, I came back from the war alive and I never even thought about those prayers. Never even tried to keep one prayer. Zamperini decided to convert to Christianity, and that led him down a path towards forgiveness and peace. I got off of my knees. Somehow I knew I was still getting drunk. I knew it. I also knew that I forgave all of my guards, including the bird. I knew it. And I think proof of that is I had nightmares every night about the bird since the war and after the war. And the night I made my decision for Christ, I haven't had a nightmare since. 1949 till now, and that is some kind of a miracle. I believe it with all my heart that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to His purpose. Christ told us in the Scriptures, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He that cometh to me, I will know I cast out. Christ is the way to God. He's the way, He's the truth. People are always seeking truth. Well, the truth is Christ. And he's the life. But I think our eternal life starts now by faith in Jesus Christ. And so that is the strength we live by, and death no longer has a sting, not to the Christian. Not quite sure how Angelina Jolie could have dropped that out of the movie. That was her decision. But that's why we do this show. And Billy Graham's life deserves an hour. And I want to share one post from his son Franklin. My father was once asked, where is heaven? And he said, quote, heaven is where Jesus is and I'm going to him soon. He departed this world into eternal life in heaven, prepared by the Lord Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, whom he proclaimed for 80 years. Again, that's Franklin Graham, his words about his father, Billy Graham, celebrating his life story here on Our American Stories. 
There's a man going round taking names And he decides who to free and who to blame Everybody won't be treated all the same There'll be a golden ladder reaching down When the man comes around And you're listening to Johnny Cash And we're celebrating the life of Billy Graham And it turns out Graham had a tremendous impact on the singer-songwriter's life. Billy invited Johnny on many a crusade, and Johnny Cash's life was altered forever by it. Again, not in Walk the Line, the movie, and we spent some time on that on a show about how Johnny Cash's life was secularized. But Billy Graham was a man he looked up to, and we all looked up to Johnny. And here's Johnny Cash in his home state of Arkansas, at War Memorial Stadium in front of 50 or so thousand people sharing some very personal dimensions and aspects of his spiritual life. Arkansas's native son, Johnny Cash, was given a warm reception as he stepped onto the platform at Little Rock's War Memorial Stadium. I've been told to say, hello, I'm Johnny Cash. (laughs) Hello, my kinfolks. I'm glad to see you. What a wonderful thrill for me to be back in Arkansas. I think I'm akin to half the people here tonight, and I like Arkansas so much I'm going to claim kin of the other half. (laughs) Last Christmas, I got a Christmas present from Billy Graham. Ruth and Billy Graham sent us a 10-pound box of popcorn. Now, that's a lot of popcorn, 10 pounds of popcorn. Three flavors, you know, in sections. And I had that popcorn opened in my office and my brother came in. He said, where'd all the popcorn come from? And I said, Billy Graham sent it to me. And he said, oh, really? I gotta have some of that. And he got a double handful. And I watched him for a minute and I started laughing. I said, you know, you can't get to heaven eating Billy Graham's popcorn. (laughs) Well, that has, uh, I've thought of that so many times since then and that has been like a a parable for me, and it really struck a serious note for me. For 35 years, I've been a professional entertainer. My personal life and personal problems have been widely publicized. There have been things said about me that made people ask, is Johnny Cash really a Christian? Well, I take great comfort in the words of the Apostle Paul who said, what I will to do, that I do not practice but what I hate, I do. And he said, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. But who, he asked, will deliver me from this body of death? And he answers for himself and for me through Jesus Christ the Lord. I'm living through the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in him, his Lord, and I love him. Still believing is not enough. James said that even demons believe and faith without works is dead. I spend a lot of my time working with with drug addicts and alcoholics and only someone who has had such a problem can have complete love and compassion and understanding for such people. I love drug addicts and I love alcoholics. 
And when Jesus said that he was sent to heal the brokenhearted and preach deliverance to the captives, I believe these are some of the people he was talking about. If some lost, lonely person somewhere out there in a dirty bed in a dark room can see the light of Jesus Christ in me, then that is my reward. My faith is alive and working. And that's not just eating Billy Graham's popcorn. How do you leave something out of walk the line like that? I just don't understand it, actually. You know, a man called Cash. We were all drawn to him because of a man called Christ. Oops, forgot that. Shame on the producers and directors of Walk the Line, which was otherwise a very good film, but for that minor omission, which was deliberate. And again, that's why we do what we do here on Our American Stories. We sometimes have to tell you the rest of the story. And what a life Cash led, and to the end, writing about the thing he cared about most, God, and those that were most in need and most worthy of our help, the poor, the afflicted, the drug addict, the inmate. That's what Cash wrote about, the damned. And Billy Graham was one of the people who truly inspired him. And by the way, Billy Graham's desire to meet with the secular world and and get folks to know Christ, well, it knew no ends and no boundaries. In 1998, Billy Graham sat down with Ted in one of those intellectual TED Talks that's driven mostly by secular audiences and by science, and now lately by just, I think it's just devolved into stories about human sexuality, global warming. It's become very, very political. But in 1998... Graham decides to go on TED. And in this introduction, Graham does what he always does, makes people comfortable by cracking some jokes. Some of you may be wondering why they have a speaker from the field of religion. But some years ago, I was on an elevator in Philadelphia coming down. I was to address a conference at a hotel. And on that elevator, a man said, I hear Billy Graham is staying in this hotel. And another man looked in my direction and said, yes, there he is. He's on this elevator with us. And this man looked me up and down for about 10 seconds, and he said, my, what an anticlimax. <laughs> I, I, hope, I hope that you won't feel that these few moments with me is, not a, is an anticlimax. And then Graham goes on to talk about technology. And he says, it isn't evil... But man yearns for something more than technology can provide. The British philosopher Bertrand Russell was not a religious man. But he said, it's in our hearts that the evil lies. And it's from our hearts that it must be plucked out. Albert Einstein, I was just talking to someone when I was speaking at Princeton. And I met Mr. Einstein, he didn't have a doctor's degree because he said nobody was qualified to give him one. (laughs) But he made this statement. He said, it's easier to denature plutonium than to denature the evil spirit of man. And many of you, I'm sure, have thought about that and puzzled over it. You've seen people take beneficial technological advances such as the internet we've heard about tonight, and twist them into something 
corrupting. You've seen brilliant people devise computer viruses that bring down whole systems. The Oklahoma City bombing was simple technology, horribly used. The problem is not technology. The problem is the person or persons using it. King David said that he knew the depths of his own soul. He couldn't free himself from personal problems and personal evils that included murder and adultery. Yet King David sought God's forgiveness and said, You can restore my soul. You see, the Bible teaches that we're more than a body and a mind. We are a soul. And there's something inside of us that is beyond our understanding. That's the part of us that yearns for God or something more than we find in technology. Ted, audiences have never heard that message before, not from someone like Billy Graham. I want to close off with Pat Williams' book, 21 Great Leaders, because I think this may be the best tribute of them all. During his 1953 crusade in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Graham went into the arena hours before the first meeting and personally took down the ropes separating the white and black sections. The head usher of the event resigned in protest, and other segregationists there were enraged. But Billy Graham stuck to his principles. At the Nashville Crusade in 1954, Graham told a mostly white audience, We have been proud as a race. We have been proud and thought we were better than any other race, any other people. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to stumble into hell because of our pride. Billy had been invited to preach in South Africa for years too, but he kept saying no until his conditions were met. He wouldn't agree to preach in South Africa until he was assured that the meetings would be racially integrated. South African campaign showed blacks and whites what their world would become if apartheid were ended. Christianity is not a white man's religion, he told the crowd, and don't let anybody ever tell you that it's white or black. Christ belongs to all the people. And so he closed the hour out with a Johnny Cash recording. Graham had such an impact on him, and I'm sure the other way around. A cover of you and McCall's first time ever I saw your face. Only this isn't about love. This is Cash turning this secular song into a gospel song. The first time ever I saw your face. The life of Billy Graham, his story, here on Our American Stories. I thought the sun rose In your eyes And the moon and the stars Were the gifts you gave To the dark And the endless sky My love And the first time
is Our American Stories, and it's time for our weekly first job segment, where we hear from famous and ordinary Americans alike about their very first jobs, what it was, what they learned, how it helped them get to where they are today, and oftentimes funny stories from that first job. And if you have a first job story, give us a call at 844-627-8255 and record your story there. Or leave us your information and we'll help you record it. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. Today's story is about Shahid Khan, an immigrant from Pakistan who is now a billionaire, thanks to this country and the opportunity it gave him which he's since spread to more people, employing over 13,000 Americans at his company, Flexengate, which we'll hear about more later. He also owns the Jacksonville Jaguars. Not bad for an immigrant. In this first clip, which we got from Forbes and some of the terrific interviews they conduct there, we learn that he's 16 years old and decides to attend the University of Illinois. This is back in 1967. And when he arrives, he arrives in the middle of a blizzard. Indeed, it's the first time he's ever seen snow. And walking through that snow in Champaign, Illinois, to the local YMCA, his shoes start falling apart. Was he ever wondering whether he'd just made, at this moment in his life, a big mistake? It was, you know, I'd never experienced anything like this. And uh, the feeling you get when snow kind of permeates your shoes... Um, and you go through the socks. I mean, I have that to this day <laughs> where I'm hardwired. I can sense something like that. But, uh, and it, you know, you're so tired, you kind of just go to sleep. And it was like, I can't believe this happened, but uh, there's got to be a pony somewhere. Yeah, there's, uh, there ha- and next day, uh, you know, when I got up, they were kind of clearing the snow, and uh, I looked at the money I had. Some of that was gone. I said... They were hiring dishwashers uh, up the street at buck twenty an hour, and I said, "You know, this can really, this is going to be great." And so I got a job, and I was washing dishes literally the next day, and thinking, "My God, what a great country!" Uh, because I am making more than ninety-nine point nine percent of the people in Pakistan, and then money is not something like you're holding a melting ice cube that's kind of going away. You're able to replenish it with work. So, so within 24 hours, I mean, I had really, you know, I've kind of discovered the American dream. There's got to be a pony somewhere. I just love that. I love that attitude. So he graduates at 21 with a mechanical engineering degree. While at Champaign at the University of Illinois, he meets his bride, But this was a pretty tough time economically, even for a guy with an engineering degree. And remember, he's an immigrant from Pakistan, so he has to hit the pavement. Let's take a listen to more. Uh, You know, in the 70s, when there was no connectivity, obviously, uh, email or how you got your resume out. I mean, I literally I went door to door because, um, you know, I was a foreign student, but you could work legally in those days for 18 months. Uh, and I would start off in the morning, uh, just going door to door industrial parks and what have you, and I did that for several months. Uh, and then uh, one day, uh, this blacksmith shop of all places in Urbana uh, was looking for somebody to come in and do everything uh, uh, weld, grind, and you know, I was able to get the job. 
At the blacksmith he worked for, they designed custom trucks for farmers, one-offs. Shahid says that's how trucks were sold in those days, and they used to weld all these parts together. And the owner, who was a farmer, asked himself, could they do this better? Shahid came up with the idea of using stamping presses to make a one-piece uniform bumper. It looked a lot better. You didn't have the seams from welding. It lasted a lot longer, and it had a lot lower cost. And from that one idea, the owner said that he made more money in one year than the 40 years he worked in the field as a farmer and decided that he needed to sell the business. Then in 1978, when the second energy crisis hit the auto industry, Shahid decided that the real market opportunity was selling direct to the car makers, and he started his own company. He started out by employing just one other person. The auto industry was not very receptive to smaller companies. And they would look at designs and they say, okay, we'll pay you and, uh, you know, use some of those. But uh, uh, GM was coming up with a small truck. This is in 78 because the energy crisis had hit. And I had a, they had missed the weight target and the guy uh, was about to get fired. So at a, as a really act of desperation, he said, okay, you know, I'm going to buy this design, authorize GM to buy the design, so we can lower the inertia weight, show better fuel efficiency, and save the program. Uh, and except they couldn't make the part. And uh, then they turned to me and said, okay, you know, if we give you a purchase order, will you be able to do it? And, I mean, I'll never forget it. you got to remember, I mean, this in the 78, GM was probably close to 5% of the GDP of America. And there you have it. What a story. And, by the way, soon after that purchase order from GM, and what a big deal to get that first purchase order, every new company is dying to land that big one from General Motors or IBM or some big company because that's how you grow into a bigger company yourself. He went from one employee to 53, and now has 13,000. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, our weekly first job segment, Immigrant Shahid Khan's story. He started as a dishwasher, was hired on his second day in this country, making $1.20 an hour. He thought that was just dandy. He was making more than 99% of the people where he'd just come from, Pakistan. And he said that this money wasn't like a melting ice cube. It was something he could replenish through work. He discovered his American dream within 24 hours of being an American. This is Lee Habib. And again, this is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and our next story comes from a former veteran of the National Hockey League, Sean Pronger. Sean's nine-year voyage and the stories behind it are chronicled in his well-received memoir entitled Journeyman, the many triumphs and even more numerous defeats of a guy who's seen just about everything in the game of hockey. An excerpt from Sean's book was posted by the sports website Deadspin, and it quickly went viral. It's titled, I Was Wayne Gretzky's Hungover Linemate, and NHL Journeyman Picks the Wrong Night to Drink. Let's take a listen to Sean's story. To the side of the net, Taylor to Gretzky, he scores! Wayne Gretzky has tied it and broken 40 house records. Say I was a Wayne Gretzky fan as a child would be like saying that my brother Chris has a small gap in his teeth. The Oilers were my team, and Wayne was my idol. It's a great game. I didn't do it to make the paper or get on TV. Uh, That wasn't really even sort of the mindset. We just played for fun. When Chris and I played hockey in the basement, I was always Gretzky, and he was always Mike Bossy. Mike Bossy put it in the net in that Two of the most creative offensive forwards of all time. These guys were our idols. My brother Chris turned into a Norris Trophy winning defenseman in the NHL. Chris Pronger, imposing, feared, and dominant. He won the MVP of the NHL. Not too many D have done that. You know, Bobby Orr. He didn't care about anything except for winning. And that's who you want on your team. And I, well, that's what this story is about. We grew up in Dryden, a small mill town in northwestern Ontario, 400 kilometers east of Winnipeg. At that time, the Jets were still in Winnipeg, and they were in the classic Smythe division. That meant the Edmonton Oilers came to town often to torture the Jets and their fans. One year, we made the journey to the peg, and by chance, or perhaps by stalking, the Prongers were staying in the same hotel as the Oilers. I can still remember sitting in the lobby with Chris, watching the Oilers walk through on their way to breakfast. Kevin Lowe walked by and Chris casually said, Hey Kev, as if they were old buddies. Who knew years later they would be buddies? I didn't see Gretzky go through the lobby, so I went over to the restaurant to have a look. And wouldn't you know it, my idol was in fact there. I can still remember Wayne was eating Eggs Benny that day. As I was spying on him, an old man came up to me and said, Hey kid, can you go get Wayne's autograph for my son? Now understand, I didn't want to ask because the great one was eating. On the other hand, of course I asked. If I'd had any brains in my head, I would have gotten one for myself as well. No one ever said I was a genius. Fast forward about 20 years, and wouldn't you know it? I got traded to a New York Rangers team that included none other than the great one. I felt like I was a fantasy camper. Start spreading the news. Looking back, I see that may be one of the reasons my career never took off the way I thought it would. I never felt like I belonged, 
because I was always looking through young Sean's eyes at my great teammates. New York, New York. From November 1998 to February 1999, I was a Ranger and a teammate of Wayne Gretzky. Any chance I got to hang out with him, I did. Although most of the time he had no idea we were hanging out. As a fringe player, you have to keep a positive attitude. No one wants to see a fifth liner complain about ice time. So one night I decided to go blow off a little steam, see what the Big Apple had to offer. The fact that a practice was scheduled for the next day did not weigh into my decision making one bit. My friend Herbie, my wife and I found a nice little tavern for a bite and a few carbonated wheat sodas. To the game! Thank God there is still a sport for middle-sized white boys. One led to another, which of course led to another four, and the next thing we knew, my wife and I were strolling home at 4.30 a.m. I think I got to bed around 5 a.m., which was great, because I had to get up at 7 a.m. to drive to the practice rink. I got a solid two hours sleep before the buzzer woke me from my coma. To be honest, I wasn't too worried because I had been practicing on defense the day before. Not a great sign for a forward. I was literally a practice fill-in. Anyway, as I walked through the dressing room, I got the sense that something wasn't right. Wait a second. That's the wrong colored jersey hanging in my stall. Why is it red? You see, in New York, I was a yellow jersey. The scrub line color. Red, on the other hand, was for Gretzky. Adam Graves and Kevin Stevens. I decided someone must be messing with me. I scanned the room to see who was trying to have some fun. Not a person in the room. I grabbed the red jersey and headed into equipment manager Mike Vogelin's office. Folks, you gave me the wrong jersey. No, I didn't, he barked back. You're wearing red today, my friend. Kevin has the flu. Mouth agape, I suddenly realized. I'm playing on Gretzky's line today. A million thoughts and questions rushed through my head. What have I done? Why did I stay out so late? Why don't they close the bars earlier? Where's my camera? How hard would young Sean punch me in the face right now? And he'd be right to do so. My first chance to play with the great one, and I had a bad case of the brown bottle flu. I jumped in the shower and drenched myself in freezing cold water. Time to wake up and get ready to go. Now I know what you're thinking. Slow down, Chris's brother. It's not like you're playing the Islanders tonight. This is practice, after all. I know. But you have to understand that for us fifth-liners, practice is the game. And when you're playing with Gretzky, it's the all-star game. As the skate loomed closer, I wondered if I should have a talk with Gretz. Just a little chat between first-liners to let him know what transpired a few hours earlier. Or maybe I should just suck up to him and lie about my state. I opted to come clean. Gretz, I'm hungover. Maybe even a little drunk still. Can you keep the puck away from me today? I could not believe I was saying this even as the words were coming out of my mouth. Was I really telling the greatest player in the history of the game, not to mention the finest passer ever, to keep the puck away from me? I was, and the great one was great about it. No problem, Pronks. I've been there myself. Wait, 
Did he just call me Prongs? He knows my name? Somehow that one line from Wayne put my mind at ease. Wayne knew my situation, and he had my back. What a guy. I was calm as I got dressed. As I did, I couldn't help but dream that Wayne and I would have some undeniable chemistry together which would force Coach to do the right thing and keep me on the top unit. We'd become as tight as two coats of paint. Right. I could barely contain my grin as we began to wheel around the ice before the drill started. There was a strut in my step and not the Guinness legs I'd expected to be carting around. I had completely shut out the fact that the coaches likely didn't want to mess up the other lines by moving someone up to play on the red line. But as the drills began, every single pass Gretz made was to yours truly. And I'm not talking about those beautiful saucer passes you see in his video, Hockey My Way. I'm talking about wobbly hand grenades that would blow up as soon as they hit my stick. And by the way, I was playing the off wing. That's right. I had to try to catch those bouncing Bettys on my backhand. Thinking the whole episode was my fault, I formulated an apology as I headed back to the line. Sorry, Wayne, was all I could come up with. He said, Prongs, don't worry about it. I'll try to give you better passes from now on. And he delivered the line with a wink. Turns out Wayne thought it would be fun to mess with me from the get-go. How awesome is that? The greatest player ever to lace them up went out of his way to thoroughly embarrass a hungover grinder. And you know what? That made me feel more included than if he had played it straight. And a great story about leadership. And by the way, the character of Wayne Gretzky. And we love getting surprised. A lot of guys would have gotten in the grill of a grinder. And he didn't. He had fun with them. And picked him up, cheered him up, and on to the next thing. And we love to talk about what makes people great. And my goodness, an insight into the greatest of all time. One of the greatest athletes of the 20th century, Wayne Gretzky. This is Our American Stories. Yeah, he's a Canadian, but he lives in America now, Wayne. And what a great American story. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and you're listening to some music by Fred Davis, recorded in the South Euclid, Ohio home of Howard Yusuk back in August of 1969. And you're thinking, who's Howard? Big record producer? Not exactly. These days, Howard is the vice president of research and publications at the Manhattan Institute, a free market think tank in New York. But back in 1969, he was a young man who loved the blues, and he was so impressed by his friend, Fred Davis, he wanted Fred's music recorded. That's a friend. Let's hear more about this from Howard himself, here performing a piece published in the City Journal entitled, The Fred Davis Blues. I always wondered what might have happened to Fred Davis. 
I'd be reminded of him by the half-inch, reel-to-reel tape recording of his music, of which I always took special care. I believed that music would be his ticket out of Cleveland's Huff Ghetto. When we lost touch, I assumed that nothing like that had happened. When I finally found out what had happened, it was both better and tragically worse than I'd imagined. He was a childhood friend in a way. We met when I was 19, in the summer before my second year of college. We both made our way early each morning through the stinging, low-hanging smog mist of Cleveland's industrial Cuyahoga River Valley to the factory where we unloaded 100-pound sacks from freight cars, piling them onto wood pallets. But our lives up to that point could not have been much more different. He was about a decade older, came to work by bus, sent by a day labor agency, and he had thick, strong arms that reflected time spent in prison. I drove the old Ford my father had bought me. I strained to lift, knowing that if I failed, I'd reflect badly on my dad, given his executive role in the front office. We learned by chance of our shared enthusiasm for the same music. Southern-born blacks outnumbered hillbillies in the shop, so the radio was tuned to either of Cleveland's two AM rhythm and blues stations. It amused both groups, though, when, to pass the time, I'd sing along, as I did one day to Chains of Love, Bobby Blue Bland's hit single that summer. It's three o'clock in the morning, baby, the moon is shining bright, sitting here wondering, where can you be tonight? It's three o'clock in the morning, baby. Lord, and the moon is shining bright. And oh, it's three o'clock in the morning, baby. And let me tell you, the moon is shining bright. And oh, I was just sitting here wondering, Lord, where can you be tonight? Lord, yeah. I learned that before he'd gone to prison in his hometown of Kansas City, Fred had played piano and guitar there professionally until he said he made the innocent mistake of carrying something for someone. Drugs, it turned out. It led to several years in the joint, as he put it, in the parlance of the 1950s hipster, in which an apartment was a crib and a girlfriend an old lady. I saw how well he could play during lunch break one day when I had brought my guitar to the job. When most of the others went across the street to drink, the two of us sat at a table outside where he played and sang. You could hear the Kansas City influence the more you listened. The jazz blues arrangements of Jay McShann confessing the blues.
I stand before you with my heart in my hand. I want you to read it, Mama, hoping that you'll understand. Well, baby, Mama, please don't dog me round. I'd rather love you, baby, than anyone else I know in town. The complex arrangements of Dinah Washington. What a difference a day makes. What a difference a day made. Harder-edged but still smooth stylings of Lowell Folsom or Eddie Boyd, Five Long Years. Fred had a full set of his own originals, too, and he sang them with a piercing, high, tearful voice from deep, slow blues like Midnight is Falling. complicated tunes, subtle and swinging, with a hint of T-Bone Walker. Tell me, pretty baby, tell me so, am I yours? Cause I want to know, cause the way you've been mistreating me, mm-hmm. it's got me feeling low. Our relationship evolved to one of teacher and student. He showed me how to play all up and down the guitar, using big, rich chords fingered in an unorthodox way, his thumb wrapped under and up the neck. I later taught the fingering to my son, who uses it professionally. He gave stern, uncompromising musical advice. Don't play too loud and don't play too fast. Eventually, we'd spend time together after work, at a small house owned by his girlfriend, Bertha Reed, 
a professional test kitchen cook in the heart of Cleveland's East Side Ghetto. She appreciated my interest in Fred, I think, but it seemed to me that she'd also grown tired and skeptical of his music dreams. He didn't play much around the house, she said. And when we come back, more of Howard Usick's remarkable story about his friend, Fred Davis. This is how music connects people, folks, across every race, across every class. When we come back, more of this great story here on Our American Stories. been listening to the story of bluesman Fred Davis and his friendship with Howard Husick back in 1969. As Fred taught Howard more about music and the two grew closer as friends, Howard got an idea. At some point I resolved, idealistically, perhaps patronizingly, to rescue him. It would be my callow mission to restore him to his career in music. This was 1969, the summer of Woodstock. Civil rights, racial justice, they were in the air, even after the King assassination. Obscure blues musicians from Mississippi John Hurt to Magic Sam were being discovered or rediscovered by white enthusiasts and introduced to new audiences. I had a business plan, you might say, to record Fred, backed by an amateur blues band of kids I knew from my suburban high school. I asked a friend who had moved to Philadelphia to take the tape to the blues agent, Dick Waterman, who lived there with his then-girlfriend, a young Bonnie Raitt. Waterman expressed interest. I wrote Fred to let him know, and he wrote back in a letter filled with an almost desperate hope. At present, I'm fine and still working like hell. Man, I do hope something comes of that tape just sitting here wishing like hell, but I'm not giving up. I'm still with my old lady. She's tops. Also, I'm still off the alcohol. Well, Cat, I'm going to close for now, but we'll script you later. You do likewise, and especially if you hear something from the tape. So, until later, always a friend, Fred Davis. I'd kindled his hope and felt responsibility to follow through. I arranged to meet with Waterman myself in Boston. He was tough and unsentimental, but sufficiently sold on Fred's music to write a letter on his behalf to Baldwin Wallace College near Cleveland, which had booked one of his clients, Mississippi blues singer Fred McDowell. Would they add Fred Davis to the program? I found his style to be quite good and a very interesting combination of a Kansas City style that also shows some of his earlier Arkansas home as well, Waterman wrote. If you could possibly use him on your program, I'm sure that his pride would be restored and his very fine music would not be abandoned. A whole new life, I hoped, would open up for Fred. Having moved on from the factory job, though, I never heard how it turned out. I never heard again from Fred. I always wondered, I feared, in fact, that I'd given him false hope, meddling unnecessarily in his life and perhaps giving the impression that I was much more connected and capable than I was. 
It was a dynamic of which Dick Waterman was clearly aware, as reflected in his letter to Baldwin Wallace. I have not told Fred that I am writing to you because I don't want him to get his hopes up too high. It was not until just recently, enabled by a subscription to the Ancestry Search Service, that I found out what happened. A review of the digital files of the exponent, Baldwin Wallace College Student Newspaper, reveals that the school's April 10, 1970 folk festival included blues legends, Mississippi Fred McDowell and Muddy Waters, but not Fred Davis. Whether they didn't want to include him, or if he declined for some reason, I can't say. But the story of Fred's fate emerges from public records. An Ohio death certificate dated November 8, 1988, almost 20 years after I knew him, reveals that Fred Davis, 49, identified as a laborer, had died of a gunshot wound to the chest with multiple visceral perforations. A Cleveland Plain Dealer story went further. Two men had robbed him of cash in a liquor store parking lot. When Fred resisted, one of them shot him. Such is the tragedy of talent bleeding out as it does every day in black America. Davis was that year's 122nd homicide in Cleveland. But there was more. Someone had gone to the trouble to write an official newspaper death notice for Fred Dave Davis, son, Oscar and Emma Davis, Kansas City, Missouri, member the Blues Express Band. Blues Express? Had he rebuilt his career after all? Had my encouragement mattered? I could learn the answer to the first question, at least. Blues Express still plays around Cleveland, and I was able to track down its new leader, Crazy Marvin Braxton. He'd taken over after the man he called Dave had died. I was working as a doorman at a hotel downtown, recalls Marvin, when they told me, get to St. Vincent's. That's the charity hospital. Dave's been shot. He was good people, Marvin said, a demanding band leader who always cautioned members, yes, not to play too loud or too fast. With a significant local following, the band played regularly, it turned out, at Fat Fish Blues for mostly white blues devotees, but also at Andy's Lounge in the lower middle class black Buckeye Road neighborhood. Fred had fans, including a pudgy white suburban couple who never missed a gig. He was planning to renovate a new girlfriend's house and to marry her at the time he was shot. He didn't deserve that. Why would somebody shoot him, I asked Marvin. Just for the $1,000 he was carrying? How would they have known? Fred, it turns out, had another side. Everyone needs a hustle, Marvin said. Fred, apparently, was selling liquor illegally from the back of a car. He'd buy it in bulk from the liquor store that he was going into at the time he was shot. The two cousins who held him up knew about Fred's business from their sister, who was a disappointed girlfriend. When we went to Dave's place, Marvin told me, we found hair powder she'd put under his pillow. It was voodoo. One of the two robbers, the actual shooter, hanged himself in a Cleveland jail. His accomplice was sentenced to five to 20 years for manslaughter. Two years later, in 1992, he sought probation, 
citing his Lima Correctional Institution Certificate of Achievement for having completed a substance abuse program, as well as the fact that he hadn't been the one who pulled the trigger. He was a Vietnam veteran. His request was denied. It's a tragically familiar story of black-on-black -black violence. Homicide is the leading cause of death for young black men in the United States. The statistics are grim, but they can't reveal how much talent and how many dreams die each year on Cleveland's east side, on Chicago's south side, or in so many other neighborhoods. My friend's murder was an obscure act of violence, passingly mentioned in the small newspaper story, yet every day such obscure acts silence talent and potential. Was the Fred Davis I had known the same guy who sold bootleg liquor from his car? Had he really been set up all those years before in Kansas City? A search for legal records or newspaper stories about his criminal case comes up empty. The only record of Fred's life in Kansas City is a yearbook photo, circa 1959, from the city's then all-black Lincoln High School, where he was a member of a clean-cut, neatly-dressed class, many of whom an alumni association website shows have gone on to professional accomplishment, as Fred did in his own way. Located near 18th and Vine, the mecca of Kansas City jazz, Lincoln was the school for college-bound black kids. Records show he'd come from a two-parent family, one of 10 children, born to an Arkansas sharecropper who had moved to Kansas City to work for the railroad. Had he always had a dark side? Perhaps an unjust drug bust had soured him. Perhaps a criminal record kept him from having the sort of day job that other Blues Express members had. Maybe he just couldn't stand menial work, not when he knew what it felt like to write a great song and sing the way he could. I still have that tape. It's been transferred and digitized. You can listen to it now on SoundCloud. Just search for Cleveland Blues, Fred Davis. The Lincoln High Alumni Association may be honoring him. I'm interested in recognizing him and for his music to be played again. I admit it, I'm still trying to save Fred Davis. And what a story. And thank you, Howard, for sharing that with us. And we'll do our best by playing Fred's music right now. Howard Usick's story, Fred Davis's story, and sadly, as Howard pointed out, when people get shot like this or killed like this, it's the talent that gets lost. It's a human life that's lost. We can never forget that amongst the grim statistics. He was the 122nd male African-American, many of them in Cleveland, gunned down in 1988. A life cut short, talent cut short. And so we leave with all of us listening to Fred Davis here on Our American Stories.